Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area, and we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio, and we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's in their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food, and that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We, we just care very deeply about, about you as a, as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain, and, and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to, to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and, and care about learning everything there is to learn about it, and that's, that's we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio, and we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. You're listening to another episode of Let's Eat In. I'm your host, Kathy Arway. This is Heritage Radio Network, and we're at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. It's actually a very nice spring-like day in February, and I have a guest on today who knows a lot about cooking. Um, even in the middle of winter when there's hardly any produce, um, she writes a column once a week on at the New York Times. It's called... Good, it, good appetite. Yep. A, a good appetite. <laughs> a good appetite. I was going to say the good appetite. But um, you've all seen her writing. Um, you've been writing there for several years, right? Yeah, I've been doing the column for, gosh, before I, I date everything, before the baby, after the baby, so at least three or four years. <laughs> Terrific. And she just came out with a book called In the Kitchen with a Good Appetite, and it's her own cookbook. You've written other cookbooks before, but... I haven't. Hi, I'm is, Melissa Clark. Everybody. Oh, sorry, this is <laughs> Melissa okay. Clark. Um, I have written other cookbooks. I've written 30 cookbooks, which is... I know, Tremendous. I know, but it's... You know, I started right when I was out of grad school, and I just... I did a couple a year. You know, I did a, several a year, and a lot of them are really short, and a lot of them are with chefs. And when you're working with chefs and you're working on other people's projects, it moves pretty quickly because you're not... I find it, I don't know, I mean, what, what did you think about writing your cookbook? Like, when you're writing your own book, you really get stuck on all these little details, and it takes a really long time, and you stress out about every word. Oh, definitely. And yeah. when you're writing someone else's, it's so clear, mm-hmm. it's like so obvious what you need to do, and it just comes together really quickly, which is good, because, you know... Um, gotta make a living right yeah absolutely it's so funny i had a show with peter kaminsky and peter meehan a few weeks ago um a few months ago and they were talking about writing for other people's cookbooks but it's so fun to see um these cookbook writers or ghost writers would you call it or, yeah or i guess co-authors yeah, co-authors um really come into their own and come out with books and this is your first book in the kitchen with a good appetite that is solely by you correct it's my you know it's not exactly my first book okay. that's solely by me but it's my first sort of big book that's solely by me the first book i ever wrote was solely by me and it was a oh. bread it was a bread machine cookbook 
Okay. Uh, yeah. So these are kind of like little books that I did. I think I made $3,000 for it. I mm-hmm. tested 150 bread machine recipes. I had four <laughs> bread machines going around the clock for six weeks. And that was... How did you do that? So you got out of college and you're like, bread machine book. I got to write it. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. I was more like, I got out of... I was, I was a caterer through college. Okay. And um, so people knew me. And, you know, this was before food writing was a thing. People didn't mm-hmm. really think of food writing as a career that you go into they just thought oh that's that or not a very glamorous one right yeah exactly it was like what are you going to do restaurant criticism like that was it it was restaurant criticism or you write cookbook I mean nobody Mm -hmm. really knew and I just I mean I you know read MFK Fisher and I was a writer my whole life I always wrote and I just thought well these are my passions food and writing and I want to bring it together so I was catering I was cooking I did um externships when I was in high school um I worked in restaurants and I couldn't figure out if I wanted to go to school to do an MFA in writing or if I wanted to go to culinary school. Sort of Mm -hmm. like, which do I do? And I decided on the writing because I started working in restaurants in the kitchen and I just got scared out of my wits because it's so hard. Being a chef, way hard. Too hard for me. Sitting in my chair writing about food, much easier. (laughs) So I decided to do that. And so I catered to support myself. And I had this little catering company. And um, people knew, oh, Melissa has this catering company. She must know how to write a bread machine cookbook. I was like, yeah, sure. I'd never seen a bread machine, never heard of a bread machine. <laughs> it was like right when they first came out. They gave me four of them. And um, I fe- they, it were, they were on four-hour cycles. So okay. I'd like get up at four in the morning to feed the bread machine. I was like, oh, you this is like the having bread a machine. kid. I, yeah, it was just crazy. And um, I did things like tuna fish bread. I was like, what happens if you put a can of tuna fish in there? It turns out, not good things. But I would like try everything. And I can't. And that was my first book. And that book has I sold. I want to check this book out. Oh, I don't think you'll be able no. to find it anymore. Oh. Maybe. But you know, the crazy thing is, okay. I that book sold more copies than all of my other books combined. I think it sold 180,000 copies. Of course, I didn't get royalties on it because I was, you know, right out of school. I had no idea what I was doing. I signed a contract. I had no agent, you know. Wow. But I wrote a lot. I mean, I wrote, so I wrote like four or five books. I wrote the bread machine cookbook, the sweet bread machine cookbook, something called the kitchen primer, something called the coffee book, all these really fast little mass market paperbacks. Okay. And that was what really started me in cookbooks, you know, at the age of 23. So, and that's how I wrote, that was the kind of increased the volume because Mm -hmm. I did so many so quickly. That's incredible. Yeah, it was, it was this weird, like, strange moment of my life. <laughs> so did you enjoy bread makers after that? No, I, I, no, no, I don't have one. No, I don't. <laughs> I gave them all away. People were really happy. Like, really, you don't want the bread machine? I'm like, no, 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 no. No, thank you. It was you. a job, yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I know. And, and then other people have approached me to do other gadget cookbooks. I'm like, no, I think I'm done with gadget cookbooks. I'm not going to yeah. do the rice cooker cookbook. I'm just not. Even though I love my rice cooker, but I like my rice cooker, you know, for rice i have this amazing like 50s like kind of pamphlet type cookbook it's um just stapled together and it's just paper and it's like miss fluffy's rice cookbook and it's so adorable oh, and i 50s love those esque. kinds of things yeah or do they have any collection. any good recipes in it um no they're all like drenched in ketchup or something like that it's weird <laughs> scary yeah I, I i don't know um but those are really fun to look through um the evolution of cookbooks and why we use them and for what and how they're produced um changing all the time right yeah and um i feel like this day and age a lot of cookbooks are becoming actually more personal and this cookbook um in the kitchen with a good appetite is um a bit of a personal uh narrative um cookbook yeah it is and that was important to me um 
I guess I, you know, I, I still have like this latent ambition of writing a novel one day or, or developing characters. And so turning mm-hmm. myself and my family into characters, or some of them would say caricatures, but no, I didn't mean <laughs> it. No, but, um, and, and, you know, developing these voices for people is so much fun. I mean, that's what I love about writing. And I mean, everything I write, even when I'm writing something that's not food related, there's food in it. Like, I yeah. mean, it was just, it's just my metaphor for life. I mean, I can, I cannot, that's how I think about everything is through this lens of food and eating and hunger. And, um, and so it just made sense for me to write this book, you mm-hmm. know, like it was the book. I mean, for a long time, I thought I was going to write, I had this really crazy childhood where my parents are psychiatrists and every August they had the whole month off and we would go to France every year. We would exchange our Brooklyn Victorian house in Flatbush, which back in the 70s, you really didn't want to go to Flatbush. So we would exchange this house for these little houses in these small towns in France. And I always nice. wondered, like, what would the French people think when they'd get off? And, you know, I mean, <laughs> it was a dicey neighborhood. Yeah, back. Not anymore. Now it's beautiful. But back then it was scary. But and we'd be in these little rural towns and we eat all this amazing food. And my parents, all they wanted to do was go to amazing restaurants and they would take us, you know, and this was back, there was no Euro, it was the Frank, it was worth, I mean, it was really cheap. Uh-huh. And we would just go around and eat all of this stuff. And I always thought I'd write a memoir about that. What um, a good education. I hope great. you do. Uh, wow. Maybe I will one day, but in a way, mm-hmm. this book was sort of like, it satisfied that desire because so many of the stories I want to tell are told through food. So I was able to tell the story and write the story, but then also share the recipe. Like yeah. I have this recipe for a pan banyat. Have you ever had one of those? It's this, it's this great sandwich from the south of France, and it's made with really good tuna, like a tuna confit, you know, okay. cooked slowly in olive oil. Or, you know, you can use canned tuna, which is what I did in my recipe. And you take it and you drench it in even more olive oil with capers and anchovies and garlic and cucumbers. And, and then you squish it. And you squish it into this thick, crusty bread. And, you know, my sister and I were kids. We used to sit on it and make <laughs> it because it was so thick you couldn't fit it in your mouth unless you flattened oh, no. it. And But then what would happen is the olive oil and the garlic would soak into the bread. And it was so good. It was still crusty on the outside, but really soft in the middle. And it just was so savory. Oh, tons of tomatoes and onions in there, too. And um, so I gave that recipe. And, and writing the story and giving the recipe also really rounded out my experience in a way that I think just telling the story without the recipe wouldn't have done. Absolutely. And that sandwich sounds right on it the alley. It was so good. Wow. Oh. <laughs> I want one right now. I don't think Roberta's does pan bagnats, though, do they? They're probably not. No, there's a pie we should order, though, with tuna called Si Senor. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, so you mentioned MFK Fisher then mm-hmm. was an inspiration. Were there any um, other earlier predecessors to the kind of kind of food writing you're, you're kind of gravitating towards? Well, Lori Moore. Yeah. I, read all, I mean, I loved Lori Moore when she first came out with her gourmet column. I read it all the time. I think I was in, gosh, I must have been in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember, you know, I was a foodie back then. I read it. And my parents got gourmet. I'd take their copy and I would read it. And then she came out with those books and I read those books too. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that a female thing? Like, do a lot of men write in this way? Or That's a good question, <laughs> actually. right now. Well, I mean, but then there are some great, you know, like it's a different voice. But there are, I mean, if you think, gosh, I mean... I feel like they're like, even James Beard, you know, yeah. like he's, some of his text is so evocative and, you know, t- Anthony Bourdain. Uh, yeah. Although that was, go. I was already a food mm-hmm. writer by that time. So yeah. I don't know if he would have tempted me into the profession. <laughs> 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 I mean, his stuff is great in its own way, but right. I don't know that it was like, cause I, you know, the stuff I love is so much about the act of cooking. Yes. Yeah. You know, what is true. it like it's to different. be in the kitchen with an eggplant? Like for Lori Moore, for mm-hmm. example, that's her one of her famous stories. Like, what is that experience like? You know, what's it like to, you know, for me, it's like 
what's it you know today i was testing shrimp recipes i'm like hmm you know what's going on here with me in these shrimp? i know <laughs> what am i gonna do with these little shrimpies you know it's cute um so you're cooking with shrimp these days um is there anything you would recommend um else we might look into since produce seems to be so scant. i know we were talking about that yeah. but we're, when, when we were emailing we were emailing like oh gosh you know there's no pro. I mean, I, well, because you're farmers market based too. Like I'm so farmers market based. I mean, you can get anything you want in a supermarket, but I really try to get stuff at the farmers market. And all the greens are gone. I don't know what happened this winter. I mean, there's cabbage, but there's not a lot of kale. There's not a lot of collards. There's not spinach. Like all the stuff that at least at the farmers market at Granary Plaza, yeah. there really haven't been. Lately, so, it's been pretty. It's been slim. pretty. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's carrots. So yeah. we've been doing. I've been doing a lot of stuff with carrots. Um, what have I done with carrots? I've been doing, oh, I've been doing this like pickle. I did a daikon, carrot, um, cucumber, which cucumbers are not seasonal, but sorry, mm-hmm. you know, I have to, have to mix it up a little bit, but, um, and doing just a simple pickle with a little sugar, a little salt and a little rice wine vinegar. Oh, sounds good. Like, like super a simple. Pickle. Yeah. Like a quick yeah. pickle, 30 minutes on the counter. And so that is like so great in the winter because the flavors are so intense and they're so bright. Yeah. And you can put that on shrimp or you can put that in as a condiment for a sandwich. I was making, um, sort of a shortcut banh mi the other day. Okay. I was working on that for a times column. And, um, so, you know, I had like this, you know, and that's just so perfect to have like a quick pickle. Yeah. But um, what I love about banh mi is that they have those long shreds of, of radish. How do we <sighs> do that? I know. I guess they use the mandolin. I guess so. And which, you know, I don't use. Which is a death trap. Yeah. <laughs> I bought one of those gloves. Okay. You know those mesh gloves? That like, oh, yeah. It's like this glove. It looks like it should it's be. It's like a medieval like, exactly. armor. Exactly. <laughs> it looks like this medieval armor sort of space glove, like a cross between the two. And you put it on your hand and then you go, and it, it actually will save your fingertips. I've gotten really bad mandolin okay. cuts. But yeah. um, for this, I just use a food processor and I grated everything up and threw it on the counter. Like literally, you don't have to measure. You can just do this by sprinkling sugar until you and you know you know when it's enough when it feels like everything's coated so you're sprinkling and you're tossing and you're feeling the little grains of sugar on your fingers while you're tossing mm-hmm. and when everything just feels and you can little, feel it when they're dissolved too. yeah exactly yeah. so you know that it's dissolved and you know that it's enough because it's sort of coated and then just a pinch of salt and then you just you know shake a little vinegar on top until it's all moist and that's it i mean it's so nice to cook that way without having to worry about measuring and to do it really yeah. sort of instinctively um, using your hands, I think, is great. Do you cook with your hands? I cook with my hands constantly. Yeah. Because I feel like then I know when, like, tossing a salad with your, your hands, you know when all the dressing is distributed. Mm-hmm. It, and your fingers are so much more sensitive than anything else. So. And a tongue would just kind of bunch them up in a weird way. Yeah. And, I mean, and you can do it with a tongue, but you just don't never quite. And, like, I always overdress my salads when I use, you know, like, tosters or something. I never quite get it right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm constantly, so I'm like constantly washing my hands, constantly using my hand, you know, just like constantly like, okay, sesame oil over my hand. On. Yeah. yeah. But it's one of the big differences, I think, between being a professional and being a home chef because you just kind of. That's so little, true. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true because you can't get away with that in a professional. I mean, I guess you could use a glove. Yeah, you could. But you lose that sensual connection. Definitely. The, t- the skin to skin. To whatever it is, contact skin to leaf, yeah, con- or skin to <laughs> skin to grains of salt, right? <laughs> whatever you're touching, yeah, you can get that. I um, was doing when I was doing my shrimp today. I was turning them by the their little tails, mm-hmm. <laughs> flip, flip, flip. You know, did you have the head on too? I didn't have the yeah. head on for these, although I love head on shrimp. Um, but not these guys were just you know the, the standard ones you buy. You know, so often when I'm developing a recipe, I'm using ingredients that are so easy to find because. That's yeah. I that's feel funny. like just like 
to get people in the kitchen and to cook. It's like I don't want to. I don't want people to have to go out and find head-on shrimp. Although I love them so much and I will buy them, but I just want you know. Or just to see that a lot of people find that a little restrictive too. Yes, yeah. yes, that is true. Anniversary. <laughs> I'm. I can't. I'm like listening here and I'm like nodding. I'm like, yeah. I don't know what else to say because I totally agree and I just don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, but so, I mean, so, we were talking about sauerkraut also right before we got on the air. Yeah. And I want, and you were talking about making Oshinko. See, that's another thing, like that quick pickle. Yeah. I feel like pickling in the winter is so, like the flavors are just so bright. Like making, you know, and obviously these are stuff that... It's a good way to brighten up dull vegetables. Yeah. yeah. And also this stuff keeps, you know, like pickles will last. It does. And um, you mentioned your quick pickles with, you know, for the banh mi. It's kind of the same combination that I was doing with Oshinko, and, um, but kind of bigger, chunkier pieces because I like to bite into it and feel that weird crunch. Yeah, I love that. That strange rubbery crunch, though, too. Um, and I, so it's basically just like making sauerkraut. You let it sit underneath a weight. Um, so and it's just salt, or do you put vinegar? Salt. Just salt, okay. And sometimes I splash a little vinegar just for extra flavor because I like the um, this. I use some marin sometimes, mm, okay. just for a little bit of um, sweetness and vinegar. right. Instead of sugar, you could yeah. use the marin. Yeah, you could use a little pinch of sugar too if you wanted. Um, it should create a vinegary flavor afterwards. So, vinegar isn't you know really necessary because the vegetables will ferment themselves. Like we'll when ferment. you're making mm-hmm. a sauerkraut. See, I'm thinking about sauerkraut too because I just did a, a sauerkraut recipe too. But I didn't. Oh. Eat, I didn't make my own sauerkraut, and I'm feeling haunted by that. I feel like oh, Melissa, why didn't you just make your own sauerkraut? And then the other part of me is like, well, making sauerkraut really? Do I have Stinky to make- on the yeah, counter. Like, yeah. Where am I going to put it? I, mean, <laughs> I guess I could put it in the basement. But it's then- kind of fascinating to think like what's going on too because it's like lacto fermenting yep, and, and yeah. I don't want to mess it up but it's you know hopefully you can tell if you do did, so <laughs> when like, you did it did you have to worry about temperature or was it fine on the cat because it isn't supposed to be like 55 degrees and a normal home kitchen is 75 degrees so yeah I tried it during the summer and I totally failed oh okay it, it was terrible <laughs> I haven't gotten back to that yet so maybe your recipe can help me out with that I didn't do it yet I just I, oh, okay. I, I bought the sauerkraut oh, okay. and I just actually I just took sour I did like kind of a chocrut variation okay. like where I took all the sauerkraut and I just added a ton of pork like it was basically like I, I love pig's feet and I can never think of what to do with pig's feet because you don't want to just make something with pig's feet because then people are like you, what, what else is <laughs> they're kind of a little hard you know for you can't serve them to company unless they're your really good friends because you're spitting out bones constantly which I don't mind doing but other people get a little embarrassed so yeah, like sure. I'm happy to spit out bones in front of my friends but I don't want my friends to feel embarrassed about spitting out bones in front well, of me, I think so. if anyone should change people's um, you know public tastes it should be you <laughs> go for the pig's feet as I, a full I, I meal it, you know well I put them in this I put them okay. but then I okay. put in some like sausage and some rib tips so that the people who are bold enough to you know <laughs> spit out the bones in front of everyone can reach for the pig's feet and then everyone else can have the, the oh, sausage. Wow. I like that. You separate the, the grown-ups from the children <laughs> a little. My husband was eating a pig's foot the other day from this and he, he's like looking at it and he's trying to cut it apart. He goes, wait, where's the meat? I'm like, there is no meat. It's just bones cartilage, and flesh and fat and cartilage. That's the beauty of it. Exactly. Lovely stuff. That's the beauty. It's, yeah. It's it, a texture it, thing. It, it's a texture thing mm-hmm. and it absorbs the flavor and it's, it is porky mm-hmm. flavor. It's sort of like pork plus whatever you cook it with, plus that amazing texture. Strings of skin. It's like why I like chicken feet, too. Although they have they taste chickeny as opposed to they porky, do. but it's just like a very kind of... I can't believe you like chicken feet, too. This is like one of my childhood favorite things really? ever. Yeah. Did you ever... Do you make them at home, or do you, you... I made them once, and they were fine. Yeah. 
but um, it's kind of the dim sum style mm, yeah, that I like. Yeah, exactly it involves deep frying first, and I is just, that how they yeah. do it? Mm-hmm. They de- oh. And then they toss it in the sauce. Yeah. Those are my favorite things. Yep. I used to have this joke that um, when I was in college, I would we always had met my parents for dim sum when I was in college because mm-hmm. I was up at Barnard and they were in Brooklyn, and so Chinatown was kind of in the middle. So I would meet them for dim sum, and if I had a boyfriend, I'd bring him. You know, at oh. eight o'clock in the morning on a Sunday for dim sum, where I would always get chicken feet. It was like trial by dim sum. Yes. If you couldn't deal with it, then out the door. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, and uh, I, but I when I make chicken feet, you know, my grandmother was Jewish. We're Jewish, and mm-hmm. she had chicken feet in her soup. So I grew up when I was really little. I grew up eating chicken feet right. straight from the soup. For stocks, or she would leave the feet in. Afterwards? Well, she would make no. It was okay. for the stock, but right. she'd always have this. She would have the feet. Say she'd save them yeah, for me, great for stock. and I would eat them like lollipops. You, know, you <laughs> bite off the pad, you had a little salt, you bite off the little toes, and you suck on the toes, and then you spit out the sure. the bones. And they're so great, the claws or whatever they are. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's that in dim sum they don't have the claws. They clip them. They clip them, which yeah. is nice. A nice aesthetic touch. When you get them in chicken Jewish chicken soup, they've still got their little claws, <laughs> which is less pretty but still tasty. Yeah, I've, I've seen when I was in Taiwan. There was kids. You know, there's a common stack where it's like snack where it's a braised soy sauce braised uh and kind of chewy and rubbery chicken feet um and i think they might have still have the claws and kids would just you know be chewing on this while they're doing their paperwork and <laughs> it's a strange sight but why not <laughs> better than those tarantulas on a stick that i you know saw somewhere god where was i that i saw those oh the water bugs it was water bugs on a stick tarantulas were at the explorers club water bugs on a stick that was thailand oh wow i didn't eat those I didn't either. I didn't My friend ate a scorpion in Thailand, though. We, on a stick. Deep fried? Y- yeah, or, or crunchy, like kind of shiny, glistening. See, I could probably do a scorpion, and I could probably do it. I did do a tarantula, which was like a soft shell crab. But the, the thing about the water bugs is when you grow up in New York, it's like, ew, they're water roaches. Bugs, they're just yeah, roaches. They're just like. Cockroach, yeah. We have them all. We, we know, mm. I mean, I used to live when I was living up on 123rd Street. We had them all over the place, and it was right. just like they were as they were as big as mice. And you they, know what? I'm just not going to eat them. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're probably you know we're probably eating them in some food. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> know, or little sorry to pieces, say, little but... pieces of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh <laughs> man, that appetizing. No, should okay. we get more appetizing in our conversation? Are okay. we being kind of yeah? Like... Let's get more appetizing. And also, I wanted to get back. Um, oh yeah, about food writing. Yeah, if that's okay. Of course. Um, yeah, so. You write your column, you know, you share some tidbits, like you cooked a a Super Bowl tea party for your daughter yesterday. And I want to ask you about that. Like, how'd the tea party go? But do you find, do you get a lot of weird people just saying like, you know, asking you about how that party went with, you know, that you talked about? Actually, you know what I get? It's, this is really funny because sometimes like, I'll fudge the dates a little bit of my column. Okay. I'll be like recently, and then recently really means like three and a half years I ago. That That's okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and just because you you know it's supposed to be like timely, and mm-hmm. so my friends are like, what do you mean you had a party recently? You haven't had a party in a year. I'm like, did you not invite me? I'm like, no, it's not that. It's just that. Remember that party I had three years ago? Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> that's so my friends are always saying that. Or how come you didn't make that for me? And oh, that's a smart way to get around it. Yeah. So you never feel like really conflicted about sharing too much about yourself with like a very public audience and in a way that's like you know true well it's not that um, i mean the stuff i'm sharing is i mean the book is much more um personal you mm -hmm. know where i really talk about you know family and strife and divorce i mean a little bit you know and 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 in the column it's all very you know kind of like 
sparkly clean and washed up and made all okay. you know. That's, so you just, same with me with my book and right. and, and the blog. It's yeah. kind of like peppered some you know anecdotes, but then yeah. I mean, and I feel like people really want to know you right yeah. don't you feel that way absolutely but was it hard for you to take the leap and add more about uh, you know family strife in your book yeah it was actually because yeah. you know and there's a lot of stuff I left out there's a lot of stuff I you know and stories I'm not going to tell of course because you know I've I love my family and I'm yeah. not going to alienate them that's just it's just too important but you know it's funny that that you know when you're writing memoir and even when it's food memoir it's loaded often and you just you have to really choose what you're going to write about and I mean I still get complaints I mean I remember my mother is featured all over my book you know mm-hmm. of course and my mother um you know she's an interesting lady and mm-hmm. has a lot of strong opinions about food and I write about them all and um when she came to my one of my book signings she met the publicist for my book and the publicist this Uh-oh. woman Allison said to her you know and there's my mother and she came to the to the book signing and she's wearing a big black and it's in the middle of February she's wearing a big black straw hat and a big black coat and like oh. these big huge red earrings and her big red glasses and, it sounds know, like a cool lady she's a cool lady and that's my mom so Allison goes up to her the publicist and says so how do you think of the way you're portrayed through Melissa's book and my mother goes she's portrayed me as a bit of a kook I think and she goes well I suppose I am a bit of a kook <laughs> I was like yes mom yes you are and, and you know you're my lovable kooky mom and that's you know and that's really important that yeah. she's there and so oh that's great it sounds like it was a warm experience then you yeah know, it so. definitely was um but you know there's some stories but of course like it's all not you know and then there's the stories that you don't really want to tell and the mm-hmm. stories that you know, I always think I'm like, well, then there's the book I'll write when I'm like 80. <laughs> when Save I, that for the other book before you die. Exactly. <laughs> the right before and dead book. <laughs> I look forward to that one. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but, you know, but the thing, the most important thing about this book was also it's like, you know, I want to share the recipes that are really important and get people to cook them. Like, don't right. you feel I mean, I know that's your big mission, which I just mm-hmm. love about what you do is Thank you. get people to cook, get people to eat in and cook and use their kitchens and show the love. I mean, there's nothing more loving than cooking show for the, someone. The, right? the beauty of like hands on, you know, feeling salts yeah. and all that stuff. I, I totally share your. And, yeah, idea, and, and yeah. that's really, I mean, and I feel like that's our mission. It's like, okay, everybody go out there and cook something. You know what? Don't You don't have to make sauerkraut. You don't have to make pig's feet. But maybe saute some shrimp. Really yeah. easy. You want to hear what I did today? So I took the shrimp, and I'm obsessed with coconut oil. Okay. I yeah. love cooking with coconut oil. Because it adds such a rich, sweet flavor. So I sauteed a ton of scallions and got them really rich with coconut oil. And I added ginger and garlic and the shrimp to the pan. And then just a pinch of ground coriander. Okay. And a little bit of lemon juice, and that was all they needed. And it was such a simple recipe. Oh, and scallion tops as well, scallion greens. And the scallion bottoms got succulent and soft and coconutty. And the tops of the scallions, which are bright green, stood crunchy and really oniony. And it was so nice with the sweet shrimp. It's such a good recipe and that so simple. Great. And it took, you know, a little chopping, maybe 10 minutes, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So that sounds. I'm I'm like kind of uh, freaked out right now because it's all without the coconut oil factor and the coriander seeds. It sounds almost just like my my mom made the other night for Chinese New Year. Oh, you're kidding! What yeah. she make? She just stir fried some and then they're head on. Um, she put in the scallions, she ginger, uh, garlic, mm-hmm. and then stir fried the shrimp. And, that and was, then it was like crusty and you know uh, with the peels and everything. Oh, still I love on. that. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and that a little salt great. at the end. 
Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So I mean, I guess it could be kind of. I guess it could be kind of Chinese, except for the coriander powder, which yeah, you wouldn't really. Except for that. I mean, it was more but like. That sounds good. Coconut. Yeah. Yum. And it was slightly. I mean, you couldn't taste coconut, but you tasted sweet. Yeah. Which was really nice. Mm, so delicious. So I have a question that I like to ask everyone on the show um, before we end. Um, what is your favorite or most you know? What would you recommend as the best date meal, the most romantic meal? Oh. Well, it depends on if you want to test somebody, in which case you might do the pig's feet, chicken feet thing. Ah, that's or, a good one. No, but I think something for, for something really romantic, um, something you can share. I like a dish that you can share, you know, like where you put the whole thing down on the platter and then you guys pick it apart together. Like, you know what's really good for that is a whole duck. Okay. A whole duck. I mean, if you don't mind making a whole duck, if that's not too hard. But they're not but too you, big. Or yeah. you can do a whole chicken even. Just like a whole, mm-hmm. but like a little one. Like maybe one of those, like, you know, if you get a heritage chicken, for example, they're smaller. And yeah. they're like around three pounds. Instead of or something. Yeah, yeah. Or something like that. Or a duck. I mean, ducks are great because ducks really do feed too. Because there's so much fat and bone and stuff. So by the time you get to the meat, and of course, I love the fat. And then you've got duck fat and you can actually fry potatoes in it. Um, so a whole bird, I think, is really nice. And then put it on a platter and just pull it apart with your hands. Do be very Tom Jones about it. Like, what is sexier and more romantic than that? And plus, here's another thing. Like, if you're dating someone who doesn't want to eat with their hands, mm-hmm. I don't know. I personally, it would be a little turned off if someone didn't want to eat with their hands. I want someone to get in there. And pull apart the skin. And pull apart and eat the, the skin and everything. Exactly. And, and, you know, like, you know, gnaw on the bones as much as they want or not, or just pull off the rich and succulent pieces of meat. However they want to eat it is fine. Like, I, you know, they don't have to eat it the way I eat it, sure. but they just have to really enjoy eating it. And um, and they can use a knife and fork as well, but I mean, just that they shouldn't be afraid to pull off the the drumstick or to That's like what it's get for. in there. It's a built-in handle. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that would That's... be. I would say that, and then something really for dessert. It should be something really simple. You know, like the most perfect, beautiful fruit that you can find. You oh, know, that's a great idea. You know, maybe in the season, I would say um, blood oranges, yeah. maybe drizzled with like perfect, you know, nice, fragrant honey, local honey, if you can find it, and toasted walnuts, like something really simple. Um, maybe a dollop of mascarpone or a dollop of fresh ricotta or something like that. Oh, know? my gosh. And that would be it. You know, and a nice bitter salad with your with your bird, maybe watercress or arugula or spinach. If you can even get local spinach, that would be great. This Pom- is this pomegranate is seeds on top, right? Way better than I could imagine any restaurant meal being. Like that's, <laughs> I'm about to go find that. We're gonna bet we're about to go eat pizza, aren't we? Yes, we are. <laughs> we're gonna do that. But for next week, Valentine's Day, you know, it's good to have that. Oh, good ideas. And, and you I can you serve little it. squares of chocolate with the orange salad too. Okay, blow your brownies lately. Oh yeah, yeah my your make, brownies. Okay, go make your favorite brownies <laughs> <laughs> or my brownies in the You're Times. Right. Go find my brownies in the Times. Terrific! Oh, this is so much fun. Um, Thank so you. Thanks so much for coming on air. Um, and check out Melissa's book in the Kitchen with a Good Appetite and her weekly columns. And you can find me else. on my website too, which is melissaclark.net. Perfect. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Thanks for Jack Ainsley and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. See ya. 